The following is a sermon that was preached at Good News Lutheran Church in Mount Horb, Wisconsin. It was preached on Sunday, April 4th, 2021, on the basis of 1 Corinthians 15, verses 19 through 26. For more information or to view our entire sermon library, visit goodnewslc.org. Thank you for listening. Evidently, it all started with the so-called nine-dot test. Do you remember this? So the, the goal of the puzzle, your job, was to try and connect all nine dots using no more than four consecutive straight lines, and you were not allowed to lift your pen or your pencil from the surface of the paper in the process. So the solution to the puzzle that wasn't immediately transparent was that you actually needed to extend the lines that you were making beyond the apparent boundaries that were created by that nine-dot grid. In other words, to solve the puzzle, you needed to think outside the box. And so an expression was born. For a while there, that idea of thinking outside the box was sort of a trendy thing to say in the world of business management or consulting. After a while, it sort of became a tired cliche that everyone grew sick of. But good news, this morning I've got an idea for a new expression that can take its place. So now when the solution to a problem isn't immediately apparent, now when a solution takes creativity and unconventional thinking, because of some recent events that have happened in our world, now we can call that not thinking outside the box. Instead, we can call it thinking outside the banks. You may be caught wind of this six-day-long saga where this gigantic tanker called the Ever Given was stuck between the banks of the Suez Canal. The tanker in question weighs 224,000 tons. It's as long as the Empire State Building is high. And experts estimated that for every day it was stuck in that canal, global shipping chains lost $15 billion every single day. In fact, experts suggested that if it had been stuck for even just one more day, there's a very strong likelihood that we could have found our local grocery stores once again out of toilet paper, just as was the case about this time last year. Only the only difference is this time, those local grocery stores would have also been out of coffee. So no toilet paper and no coffee. I think you'd agree that's a pretty serious problem. Now, as this saga unfolded and as images like this and eventually memes that were based off of these images kind of circulated their way around the Internet, it was interesting to see this event sort of evolve into a metaphor for life. What happened in the Suez Canal seemed to sort of resonate with people, and it's understandable why when you think about it. Very often in life, it can seem as though we're sort of just cruising along. And sure, there are waves and ripples on our journey, but the types of things that often cause us to get stressed out or to lose maybe a little bit of sleep are things like, will we make the deadline our boss has set at work? Or what type of college are the kids going to get into? But then every now and then we come across some gigantic and immovable object in life that suddenly grinds everything else to a screeching halt and makes everything else seem small and insignificant by comparison. And of course, 
the biggest and most immovable object that lies downstream for each and every one of us is death. So, for example, maybe all of the sudden, that health that you so easily take for granted is in jeopardy because the doctor tells you that you need to start chemotherapy treatment on Monday. Or maybe all of the sudden, that person that you love so much and lean on in life is suddenly taken away from you against your will, kicking and screaming through all kinds of tears and sadness. So what then? At one point or another, all routes in life will come across this big immovable object called death. And when that takes place, what then? What happens when our normal and conventional ways of solving problems in our lives just don't work? What happens when all of the determination, all of the discipline, all the hustle and effort that we might possibly bring to the table isn't going to budge death a single inch? It's good for us to be asking questions like that on this day that we call Easter. You see, there are other problems that we face in life of smaller size and smaller scope that can be solved and answered on other days and in other ways. But when it comes to that biggest and most important question, especially the question of death, the answer is only going to be found outside Jesus' empty tomb. In fact, as we look at these verses from 1 Corinthians 15 this morning, we're going to see that our death-sized problem requires a resurrection-sized solution. Paul wrote the words that you just heard to a group of Christians in Corinth who evidently were struggling to connect the dots, you might say. They fully believed the thing that we are here to celebrate today. They believed that Jesus had risen from the dead, but they did not see how what happened to Jesus had any impact on what was going to happen to them, especially when the day came that they died. Instead, they were still clinging on to the very best solution and answer to death that the world around them could offer. That solution sounds something like this. Obviously, when a, a person dies, it seems as though that's when their, their bodily, physical life comes to an end. We can see that. We take that body and we put it into the ground and it tends to stay put. But maybe that's not the case with the other part of us. Our mind, our soul, our spirit, whatever you want to call it, Maybe, just maybe, that invisible part of us lives on even after we die. In other words, if death is the 224,000 ton barrier that is standing in our way, then maybe, just maybe, our souls are slippery enough that they can kind of sneak around. That's an idea that's been present in our world for a long, long time. In fact, it's very prevalent in our world even today. You sometimes hear that idea expressed in very commonly accepted ideas such as these. The idea that it's really our, our inner self that is our true self and our authentic self. In contrast, our bodies are at best an incidental part of who we are or at worst a prison in which our true inner selves might actually be trapped. In fact, did you know that right now the best and brightest minds in our world who are trying to solve the problem of death have this solution as kind of their, their greatest hope for the time being? The idea is that at some point, advances in technology would allow us to upload our entire minds, our entire consciousness even, up into the cloud so that even after these physical shells are no longer working, we might still be able to live on through some other form of physical shell. 
if that's the best solution to death that we can come up with, if that's the solution that we are clinging to, it's going to have implications for how we live our lives. And in fact, that was true in the church in Corinth. And Paul points out some of those implications in this letter. One of the things that he talks about in the first letter to the Corinthians is sexual immorality. If our bodies really are just an incidental part of who we are, then why not use them to gratify whatever desires our true inner selves might have? Why not use our bodies sort of the way that we use our automobiles, just as vehicles, as instruments to get us where we really want to go, to help us act out on and satisfy whatever desire we might have? Another thing Paul talks about in this letter is how among the Christians in Corinth, they had exalted knowledge that they possessed for themselves at the expense of love that they would show to others. If our minds really are the one part of us that is going to survive, then why not give our minds all of the attention? And if our bodies are just going to end up in the ground anyways, then why in the world would I care about the food or clothing or aid that my neighbor's body might need? In fact, it's been interesting to watch over the course of the past year, if you want a, a clear example of how these ideas are perpetuated in our world today, as we've done the types of things that we've had to do over the course of the past year, including here as a church. The idea that maybe it is just as good if each and every week we would sit on our couches with our pajamas, sipping our cup of coffee, and we would sort of just download the spiritual content that we need each and every week, and who really cares if we never have any real contact with a real flesh and blood human being ever again? Maybe that's what we should be doing, not just during a, a time of pandemic, but even beyond that. Maybe that's sort of the next greatest thing. If the very best solution that we can offer for death is the solution that our world provides for us, then all of that makes perfect sense. And that is exactly the reason why Paul gives his assessment of that solution, the assessment that he gives in these verses. Paul says, if all of that is true, if our, our last and best hope is really just that our souls might live on, Paul says, then the last thing you would ever want to do in life is be a Christian. Why? Because Christianity tells you to control your body. It tells you to use your body in service to God rather than in service to gratifying your desires. And Christianity tells you to love your neighbor, that real flesh and blood neighbor who is around you in your life, including the physical and bodily needs that he or she might have. Christianity tells you to do a million other things that make no sense at all if death is the end of our physical existence. In fact, Christianity tells us to do a million things that seem to make our physical existence more difficult and more painful for as long as it lasts. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, Paul says, then we are of all people the most to be pitied. If death really is the end, even for just our bodies, then we might as well eat, drink, and be merry for as long as we've got. If death is the end, it would be pitiful for us to live as if it weren't. Now, when I hear that word pitiful, I can't help but think of some of the images 
and some of the memes based on those images that were getting circulated around the internet over the course of the past couple of weeks. For example, when the size of a solution doesn't come close to matching the scale of the problem, when all of the effort in the world isn't going to budge that immovable barrier one bit, pitiful seems to be an appropriate word to use. Now, to be fair, the, the excavator that is pictured in that picture on the screen kind of got a bad rap as that picture made its way around over the course of the last couple of weeks. Eventually, that excavator was, in fact, part of the solution in getting that ship unstuck. That excavator, along with dozens of others, along with dozens of tugboats that were pulling in the water, eventually got that ever-given tanker unstuck so that it could go on its way. But do you know the one thing that made the difference? Do you know the one part of the plan and part of the effort that put it over the top? It wasn't any idea or solution or effort that was outside the box or even outside the banks. It was a force that was truly and quite literally outside of this world. It was the moon. Last Sunday, a week ago today, there was a full moon. And in fact, a full moon where the moon was especially close to the earth in its orbit. And because of the gravitational pull that the moon exerts, the tide in the Suez Canal rose to a level of 18 inches above its normal highest level, allowing and aiding the effort in setting the ship free. And the best part of that is that because lunar cycles are so predictable, all of the engineers and all of the scientists who were working on this knew that this little burst of heavenly aid from above was on the way. They could plan for it. They knew it was coming. It was predictable. It was inevitable. So yes, even the world's best solution to the problem of death might be called pitiful. But the outside-of-the-box, heavenly solution that God has provided to us is inevitable. And that's what Paul wants to stress in these verses. As I mentioned before, these Christians believed the very thing that we are here to celebrate. They believed that Jesus had risen from the dead. In fact, just for good measure, earlier in the chapter, Paul had sort of recited all of the historical evidence and eyewitness testimony that is available to substantiate that fact. But here... Paul wants to stress the connection between Christ's resurrection and ours. Because Jesus' resurrection is a historical fact, our resurrection is inevitable. Paul calls Christ the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So picture a, a farmer and his field. For a farmer, the first fruits are that part of the crop that is ready to be harvested first. So picture a farmer who has a field. He plants the entire field in exactly the same way with exactly the same seed. He waters and cares for that field in exactly the same way with exactly the same water. The sun shines on that field with exactly the same rays. And so finally, harvest time rolls around. And yes, there is one corner of the field that is ready to be harvested just a little bit sooner than the rest. But let me ask, is it possible for that field to produce just one corner of the harvest and somehow the rest of that harvest would, would not be ready or would fail to be produced? Of course not. Once the first fruits have come in, it is inevitable that the rest of the harvest will follow. Paul makes the very same case 
when he compares what we have in Christ with what we received from Adam. He says, as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. If you're wondering how inevitable our resurrection is, it is as inevitable as death is in our world. It is as inevitable as the full moon's gravitational pull and the effect that it has on a body of water's tide. Not only have those two dots been connected, but it is impossible for them to ever be disconnected again. Because Christ rose, our resurrection is inevitable. Paul wants us to know that that is the future that is in store for us. Our last and best hope for death is not somehow that our our slippery little soul will find a way to sneak around that immovable barrier. No, Paul tells us that one day the walls of that barrier, the walls of the grave of death itself will be kicked down. Death is not the end. Not for our souls and not for our bodies either. And if that is the case, then it sure would be a pity if we were to live as though it were. Paul wraps up this section by saying that once our resurrection occurs, then we will arrive at the end. Then the end will come, Paul says. Literally, he's saying that when that happens, we will have reached our goal. We will have arrived at the place that is the entire point and the entire purpose of the life that God gave us in the first place. And because that is true, our resurrection is not just some thing that's going to happen to us someday off in the future. Our resurrection is something that has a gigantic impact on every day that we live right here, right now. I mean, think about it. If you were to set a goal for yourself, say that 10 years from now you wanted to have a certain degree or you wanted to have a certain job, or you wanted to be married, or you wanted to have a certain number of children, you know full well that setting that goal doesn't mean that 10 years from now you just wake up and magically you've arrived in that place. No, if you set that goal, it means that every day that leads up to it is going to be different. Once you set a goal, you've also put yourself on a completely different path. And so all of those things that God asks us to do as Christians. Things like controlling our bodies and living in service to him. Things like serving and loving the neighbors around us, including in their physical and bodily needs. Those millions of things that Christianity asks us to do that maybe seem to make our physical existence more difficult and more challenging. Each and every one of them is in service to our goal. The goal of an eternity where body and soul have been reunited. When we do those things, we are investing in the very stuff that eternity is made of. When we do those things, we are buying up the currency that will run the economy in eternity. When we do those things, we are enjoying and celebrating and flourishing in the very way that God designed us to exist and the very way that this has been and will always be about our existence as human beings. And so again, what a pity it would be if we were to do just the opposite. If instead of living for what is inevitable, we decided to live for what was immediate. 
if instead of celebrating the fact that those walls of the grave have all been torn down, we instead built those walls back up, back up and hopped back in to the box. If death is not the end, it would be pitiful for us to live as though it were. And thankfully, that if is not really an if at all, of course, right? Even though that future that is in store for us is invisible to us as we sit here right now, that's why it is so important that it is inevitable. That's why it's so important that that future dot that exists for us is connected to that historical dot that happened to Jesus. That real, historical, substantiated, witnessed event that we are here to celebrate today. In fact, the very reason we are here to celebrate it today, not yesterday, not tomorrow, the very reason we're here to celebrate it today is actually the very same reason that the Ever Given was able to be set free from the banks of the canal so that it could go on its way. This day that we celebrate, this day where we find the answers to life's biggest question, this day where we see how our death-sized problem has a resurrection-sized solution, we celebrate this day on the first Sunday after the first full moon of spring. So that very same full moon, that last Sunday, raised the tide and moved aside that immovable object each and every year that same full moon signals to us it is time to celebrate that Jesus has risen from the dead. Like clockwork. It's predictable. It's inevitable. We can count on it. That's why when we celebrate, like today, we don't say, well, if Christ raised, was raised from the dead. No, we say, Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. And indeed, you will be raised too. Amen. Amen.